KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. My name is Matt Leon. We have talked a lot about unemployment in the U.S. in the midst of this pandemic here on the podcast. Right now, we wanted to focus on the concept of long-term unemployment. How exactly is it defined? How many people does it affect? And, And what can it do to somebody who is out of work for an extended period? For this conversation, we reached out to Scott Diekel, Associate Professor and Chair of the Business and Economics Department at Ursinus College in Collegeville. Really important conversation. Give a listen. There's so much talk and so much focus on unemployment, and I think our eyes now are starting to glaze over when we read these numbers and we're not really kind of letting them, we're not going through them. But there are a lot of people that have been out of work for a long time as a result of this pandemic. Kind of, we hear the term long-term unemployment, the people who are long-term unemployed. Is there an actual like economic definition of who falls into that bucket? There is. In the United States, we define it as being unemployed for 27 weeks or longer. So that means six months or longer. And to... um, Give some perspective. I, I pulled some numbers together. I mean, I, I think most of our listeners are, are aware that there are a lot of people who have been out of work since uh, late February, early March. And you might be wondering, how does it compare to situations we've been in, in the past? And the government first began keeping records on long-term unemployment in 1940. And between then and now, the worst stretch we had was after the subprime mortgage crisis, which, which a lot of us can remember. We had a five-year stretch with really elevated percentages of long-term unemployed. And by my calculations, the peak was about 4.5% of the labor force was uh, unemployed for 27 weeks or longer uh, in 2010. In comparison, at the last report by the government, we were at about 1.5% long-term unemployment. And the thing is, though, that number is rapidly growing. I drew a graph showing the numbers from 1942 today, and we're on the radio, so we can't see it. But uh, if you imagine a very large spike going from the bottom of the graph to the top <laughs> around 2009, uh, you can see something very similar happening uh, starting in uh, May of this year. Um, the spike in long-term unemployed is uh, almost vertical, and it continues to climb. So while we're not at the level we reached in the subprime mortgage crisis, uh, I think there's a good chance we're headed there. I mean, you think about the situation we're in right now and what it would take to get people back to work, it uh, looks very challenging. The, the numbers tell us that the largest concentrations of unemployed are in the industries you would expect, leisure, hospitality, transportation, and also to an extent education and healthcare. Those situations are going to change until we feel like we've beaten the coronavirus and we can go back to normal. And in fact, uh, when we get back to normal, the, the normal won't be the same as it was before the crisis. So, so there's going to be long-term and in some cases permanent changes in, in the employment picture. And uh, it's uh, very likely that our numbers of people who are long-term unemployed are going to grow and grow for months to come. And, and to your point, you know, when you talk 27 weeks, you know, we're just past the point where that would, you know, from the beginning of the pandemic. So 
we're really exactly. kind of in a point now where that number is just like you said, but when you start to think about it and it makes sense, like, oh boy, we're starting to hit a point now where we could see this just absolutely explode. Like we, mm-hmm. you know, probably hard to get our heads around. Right, right. The people who are classified as long-term unemployed in September, um, most of them lost their jobs in March. And so in October, we'll see the folks who lost their jobs in April. And in November, we'll see the folks who lost their jobs in May and, and haven't been able to recover. So that's behind my belief that, that we'll see those numbers continue to grow. To that point, I mean, we actually did a podcast three lifetimes ago about mm-hmm. what we were expecting in the second CARES Act, however you wanted to talk about right. it. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, they haven't passed one. And we keep hearing these discussions. Mm-hmm. And uh, But how much damage are we doing to the long-term unemployed by not having a second stimulus package with extra unemployment benefits, work programs, job programs, I don't know what, but I mean, Mm -hmm. how much damage are we doing by not having any help for these people? Yeah, well, I've I've gathered some information on that from some recent studies, um, and there's a a few interesting ways of looking at it. Uh, One study that was done by researchers at Columbia University found that the number of people in America living in poverty actually declined significantly by 4 million people in the months of April and May. And as we can recall, those were the first two months of the funding from the CARES Act. That's when we got the stimulus checks and that's when the extra $600 a week in unemployment payments uh, came through as well. Since May, uh, as uh, the uh, benefits of the CARES Act have uh, expired, we have seen an increase in the number of people living in poverty of 8 million. So it's offset that decline and basically replaced it again. So we now have 4 million more people living in poverty than we did before the COVID pandemic uh, really hit the economy. What does poverty look like? The the figure a lot of economists and government officials use is $28,000 a year of income or less for a family of four. So imagine if you had uh, a spouse and two children and you were trying to make it on $28,000 a year. I don't know about you, but I make considerably more than that. And I have a hard time <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, staying in the black. Uh, so I can only imagine what $28,000 is like. But you know, if you look at the anecdotes from news reports and people that you talk to about how people are coping, well, There was a study done by J.P. Morgan Chase and the University of Chicago. They looked at uh, the data from J.P. Morgan's bank account holders, uh, many of whom have lost their jobs for the long term. They found that in August, which was the first month without the uh, expanded unemployment benefits, the the workers they identified as as unemployed drew down about two-thirds of their savings. And so they they suspect that they probably maintained a standard of living in August that they had had before then. But in the last month, uh, those workers are now out of savings and it's not clear what they're doing from the bank data. When when you look at other sources of data, we see uh, an increase in credit card delinquencies in September. Um, We hear anecdotal stories of renters and mortgage owners not paying their mortgages or rents. People 
You can find them in interviews saying they're eating less than they used to. Uh, some people are having their electricity cut off. Um, and uh, we have also seen a decline in enrollment in college. Um, some figures recently came out saying uh, there's a 16% decline in the freshman class this year. And that was heavily concentrated among community colleges. When you think about it, the folks who are probably most likely to go to community college would uh, also be uh, heavily represented in the industries that have been hardest hit by this crisis. So you can just see a, a, an immediate uh, set of, of really consequential effects on people's lives. And doesn't this, I mean, if we had a discussion about the economy in January, uh, we would talk about income inequality being a problem in this country. Mm -hmm. It's that on steroids turbocharged now, isn't it? Because you talk about these industries uh, that mm -hmm. are struggling the most, and those are a lot of industries where people, you know, were maybe just kind of putting it together. Uh, how concerned are we what this long-term unemployment situation, as it explodes, is going to do to the state of uh, the, the, WAP, the wealth gap in this country? Yeah, well, in the direction we're headed, uh, it can only exacerbate it. Um, you know, like you like you said, the industries where we see uh, the greatest job losses are in the uh, retail, bricks and mortar retail sector, and the leisure and hospitality sectors. Sectors those are very labor intensive industries, and they employ a lot of low wage labor. So. It's easy to see that uh, a lot of people who didn't have much wealth to start with before the pandemic now have uh, no ability to add to that wealth and or as the data on the savings account drawdown uh, suggests they're uh, losing wealth even more. The, the surveys I see indicate that there's been some job losses in higher paying jobs, but uh, nowhere near the magnitude of the job losses and unemployment you see in the low low-skill, low-wage labor sector. Is there data that shows how being unemployed for a long period of time affects your expected earnings, product productivity, kind of big picture, what it can, what it can do to a person? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, there's data, and I can even give good anecdotal evidence. Um, I had a great conversation with a, a student of mine who recently graduated from Ursinus, and he's now working as a, a manager, a floor manager at Amazon. And he tells me that uh, since the pandemic hit, they have had a number of workers who worked in various fields. They were in restaurants, they were in retail, some were paralegals, some worked in areas of healthcare that haven't really been able to open up. And uh, he can see a clear difference between those workers and uh, the workers who uh, come to Amazon from other sectors, like within the field of transportation and logistics. They just are not as productive. Uh, they're good. They show up for work. They're working their hardest. But uh, there's what we in economics call a skills mismatch, where your skills are developed over time to fit the field you're working in, whether that be restaurants, healthcare, education, whatever. And when you have to switch fields, you just aren't as productive within your new field for a period of time. So, so you, you can easily imagine the loss of productivity. And that loss of productivity has shown up in, in studies over and over, uh, over the decades in economics. And that translates into lower wages. Um, 
we all know it's not a perfect correlation uh, in the workforce between productivity and wages, but on the whole, the, the more productive a worker is, the more they're going to be paid. So uh, numerous studies have found that workers who go through spells of 27 weeks or more of unemployment, uh, after they get a job, their earnings are lower on average than workers who had just been in a sh relatively short spell of unemployment. And the, the reasons go back to the skills mismatch. There's also a skills erosion when you're out of work uh, for six months or more. Even if you go back in your own field, you haven't had a chance to keep up with the changes in your field. And maybe you've forgotten a little bit of what you learned while you were on the job. So uh, earnings take a hit. And that hit, uh, unfortunately, in many cases, lasts throughout your career. Uh, if you uh, were making $30 an hour before you lost your job and you, your next job a year later starts at $20 an hour, you are just on a lower trajectory uh, than you had been and it's really difficult to catch up. Some people do it, but uh, the norm is to not catch up. From the damage this does to an individual uh, on the greater economy, how much... <laughs> does this drag over the long term, not just in what we see in these unemployment numbers we get, but you mentioned, you know, if people make less, it, it I would imagine it just kind of drags on the whole American economy, no? Right, right. When, when workers are earning less, they, they consume less, and so businesses are selling less, and so that creates a whole feedback loop where there's there's less consumption, less production over time. And really the fundamental driver of economic growth is productivity. Um, economies that have the most productive workers are the wealthiest economy because they're getting the, the most possible goods and services out of those workers uh, at a given period of time. So if a large number of workers are out of work and lose their skills, or if they have to go to a field that they're not familiar with and they're less productive, that means there is going to be a macroeconomic effect. And in our case, we have a very widespread uh, issue with that. Um, and we're going to see, I think, a, a pretty large effect for years to come, uh, unless we can develop uh, some kind of uh, solution or way to address it that'll help us uh, transition in, in a better way. Kind of my next question, let's try to you know, bring some light into this conversation. Mm -hmm. What are some things we can do? I mean, some of the points you made about what we saw in April and May with the level of poverty, with the stimulus, mm -hmm. it's very obvious that A led to B and it was a good thing. So what would be some things you would like to see that aren't going to fix this problem, but start maybe pushing mm -hmm. it in the right direction? Well, I think it would be nice if we could identify the sectors that are either in for very long terms of uh, low, low production and low employment, or, or maybe even permanently going away, and somehow target some aid to the folks who are working in those sectors. Like, uh, we've seen airline executives make statements like they don't expect their business to return to quote-unquote normal until 2023 or 2024. So if it doesn't look like the airline industry won't be back to normal for three or four years, um, it's time to uh, segment out a lot of airline employees and see if we can find ways to help them find a new field where they can 
enjoy something like a similar standard of living to what they were doing in airlines before. Uh, I admit that's easier said than done. There's, there's not a great way to get people to just say, oh, you know, I've been a pilot for 20 years or I've been a flight attendant for 15 years. I'm ready to switch to become a computer programmer or uh, an Amazon warehouse worker. You know, there, there's just tremendous uh, psychological burdens and just uh, lifestyle changes that have to be made. Uh, so it, it's not easy, but I think programs like that probably could be more effective than simply sending people checks over and over to try to get things going and, and continually giving money to keep certain businesses at a level of employment like they were before the crisis. Um, I, I think when you continue those sorts of efforts, you, you don't get any movement towards where people need to be when the economy is ready to hire them and get them back to work again. It seems to me that this is a moment that requires a kind of political imagination. I kind of when you're talking, you're talking about programs and stuff like that. I'm thinking back to things I've read and studied about the New Deal and how we just kind of threw mm-hmm. a lot of things against the wall. Some worked, some didn't. But mm-hmm. is that a, mm-hmm. maybe we don't need a New Deal? But do we need the people to think outside the box? Do we need political imagination? And is our political climate mm-hmm. capable of that right now? Well, to, to the first question, I would say certainly, yes, we need, we need political imagination. Um, you know, you can think back to the New Deal, like you said, and there were certainly a number of projects there that probably didn't do much to improve the economy. And we can even think back to some of the stimulus packages, uh, parts of the stimulus package after the subprime mortgage crisis that really didn't do much for the economy. I mean, Things like building more roads, bridges, and so on, I think they're important, but in terms of like getting people employed and getting people uh, somewhat back to their old standard of living, it's actually not that effective. Um, so yeah, we need, we need some imagination, some ways to figure out how to get uh, people into the parts of the economy that have the highest demand. And we also, yeah, need something to change in the political situation. It seems like there's an argument basically over just how much money to throw at the problem and, and just rough ideas of where to throw the money. But there, there's not a lot of talk of how best can we help people who even six months from now, after another round of stimulus, still are going to be in a really difficult position in life. And I, I think that's a better way to approach the problem. Even if uh, a really nice stimulus package somehow gets through in the next couple of weeks, I think based on all of what we know about how the vaccine and the virus will progress over the next year, we're still going to have serious problems after that six-month period. And uh, it doesn't look like the negotiations are really addressing that. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 